Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If you are not, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with academia, innovators, startups, NGOs, all looking for solutions to the greatest challenge of our time. My name is Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. And today, wow, let me introduce our guest, Dr. Venera Anderson. She's a global strategy advisor, a published author on sustainability and climate issues. And she's also a member of Harvard Business Review Advisory Council. She creates and implements innovative solutions that address the world's most pressing problems, such as climate change, economic development, and humanitarian challenges. Dr. Anderson primarily focuses on international projects in clean energy, tech sector, and proprietary analytical research. I am so thrilled to have you here, Venera. Thank you so much for joining us today in the podcast. Thank you for welcoming me to your, to your podcast, Samuel. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. I really look forward to our discussion today. Venera, thank you so much. You are an auto. You are a recognized expert on sustainability worldwide. But before, as usual, we want to know, what is your sustainability journey? What motivated you to pursue a career in sustainability and climate issues? Samuel, it's been quite a journey. I'm sure you know a very famous quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. You know, reflecting on my life right now, it seems that my sustainability journey thus far has followed Emerson's advice. However, at the beginning of my career, this quote did not coincide with my then life plans. In college, I always had a very clear and conventional vision of my future. Therefore, after graduation, I began my investment banking career on Wall Street at Solomon Smith Barney's Financial Institutions Group, where I obtained transactional experience in various financial advisory assignments, such as mergers acquisitions, fairness opinions, minority stake sales, and auction rate preferred offers. I also analyzed strategic issues for global asset managers and insurers. Later, I coordinated and led global structured note sales management product and processing training for associates in 11 offices of Bank of America's International Private Bank. I also had a stint at Goldman Sachs Equity Capital Markets Group, working closely with public and private companies, governments, and financial sponsors to originate, structure, and execute equity and equity-linked financings including IPOs, follow-on offerings, and convertible debt offerings. However, during my time at Harvard Business School, I also got fascinated with global issues, such as poverty, climate change, and international relations. So besides my MBA coursework, I also completed an independent research study on poverty in transitional economies, and also started a doctorate in economic theory at another university in Eurasia. So before graduation, I was considering many careers with the most global impact, feeling that the world was about to change. Based on my analysis and intuition, I was sure that financial and non-financial issues related to society, environment, will be crucial for the sustainability of businesses, economic, social systems, and the well-being of our planet. And mind you that this was eight years before the UN adopted sustainability, sustainable development goals and before sustainability emerged as a viable career choice. So after graduation to create a global impact, I decided to continue with my doctorate program and also return to Wall Street, joining Credit Suisse's Global Power and Renewables Group, 
which at the time was considered the best global investment banking group focused on renewable energy. So eventually I decided, like Emerson said, not to go where the path may lead. Instead, I chose to carve out my unique path in sustainability as a career portfolio focused on developing and implementing solutions for global issues, as climate change, economic development, and humanitarian challenges. Since I'm most passionate about the following SDG goals. Number one, no poverty. Number seven, affordable and clean energy. Number 13, climate action. And number 17, partnership for the goals. So therefore, I have carved out my path in sustainability, which is most aligned with my interests and values and beneficial for, for my clients. So quoting legendary Diana Ross, every step of my journey has been necessary and perfect and complete. Fantastic. I mean, Venena, every time talking with change makers that come to this podcast like you, I am humbled to see your achievement and your work and your career. And you're also an example for me. And I want to point out something something that you said, portfolio career. We, we, we listen, there are articles and discussion, books, and it's something that's also on this side, I'm trying to work and, and, and create. So can you define a bit, what is portfolio career? Sure. The portfolio career or portfolio life strategies have been widely introduced and discussed over the recent years. So according to uh, Mitra Kalita's article, I believe it was in a Time magazine in 2022, why the career of the future needs a portfolio approach, mentioned that during the recent years, there has been a surge in portfolio careers due to the factors such as growth of hybrid, remote opportunities, a sense of existentialism confronting workers during the pandemic, also dissatisfaction with corporate jobs and pay. And to that end, I highly recommend reading the books by April Rini. Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change, and Christina Wallace's Portfolio Life on this subject. Most importantly, as Wallace says, that nowadays, the old career book doesn't work anymore. The rise of the portfolio career is a direct result of trying to survive and thrive in this incredibly challenging and rapidly changing world. And let me tell you a fun fact. I didn't know that but while, while reading Wallace's book that Albert Einstein apparently followed the strategy early in his career by working in a so-called dull Swiss patent office so he could support his growing physics research. It is so important and we really, I want to appreciate your discussion because it really makes a shed light of the many lives of us that are working and creating and building up a career, a diverse career, and as you say, a portfolio career. And now I want to go back a bit to your work. You are an advisor. We we have listened to your career working from the Wall Street and now you are advising businesses, startup, established company and not, pro, and not for profit. So I would like to, if you can share some impact project that they shed light a bit on how you foster sustainability, especially in the two areas, you know, the private sector and the public sector. Absolutely. I will be happy to. Since we don't have too much time, instead of describing my big Wall Street deals, I will focus more on impact projects for startups and nonprofits. In my sustainability journey, two main priorities of my career portfolio have been as followers. First, is getting a diverse global experience. Since countries, their private and public sectors, address climate change, economic, and humanitarian challenges from different angles. That is why I chose leaving and working on projects on three continents, North America, Europe, and Asia. My second priority has been obtaining a practical knowledge 
in engaging and obtaining buy-in from diverse stakeholders, which is a vital sustainability goal. And as we witness nowadays, the age of a stakeholder is also getting relevance as the age of a shareholder, as a political and societal shifts and climate change negate previous years of relative prosperity worldwide. So throughout my projects in private and public sectors, I got such stakeholder experiences, not only working with CEOs, investors, or lenders, but also working directly with local communities, frequently communicating with them in their local languages. So let me just focus on some of the impact projects in the private sector and then touch upon the public one. Can I, can I go with that? Fantastic. And, and really, I mean, don't worry about the time because it's, it's such an important topic. And I'm sure the audience, okay. I mean, they really wants to understand and discuss this. Sure. So in the private sector, I enjoy working with startups or established international companies in clean energy tech sectors, which maintain this entrepreneurial spirit. Since meeting people with boundless energy and passion for change never gets old. For example, while focusing on SDG goals number 7 and 13, which is Affordable Clean Energy Climate Action, I especially remember my early project on advising a solar energy startup in California, where I consulted CEO and equity partners in coordination of strategic decisions and investor relationships. I secured eligible lender, eligible lender commitment letters from Global Investment Bank for U.S. Department of Energy 1705 Loan Guarantee Programs Application and power purchase agreement submission. I also performed due diligence on solar model manufacturings, among other tasks. And now I'm astonished to witness the speed of energy transition in the state. Later on, I was involved in many other international impact projects connected to sustainable ag agriculture, uh, biodiesel, and other types of clean energy. And currently, I'm especially proud of another project which is more focused on economic development, humanitarian challenges. As of yesterday, uh, my global team consisting of HBS and MIT experts and also an international state-related technology company, where I serve as an external environmental and sustainability expert, was chosen to become a supplier to the State Revenue Committee and the Office of the Prime Minister of the Republic of Armenia in procuring of an artificial intelligence and machine learning system. The Republic of Armenia has recently received financing from the World Bank towards the cost of the fourth public sector modernization project and intends to apply a part of the system, part of the proceeds towards the system. So this project's impact is twofold. First, by using the system, the country intends to achieve its sustainable development goals. For example, Armenian government will be able to analyze big data taxpayer records, enabling it to fight corruption and make better economic decisions. And as a result, the, the country will be more successful in fighting poverty and growing its economy. And second, the buildup of the system itself must be sustainable. An entire value chain, team design, internal processes, carbon footprint, etc. So as you can see, this sustainable impact reaches two goals, both on macro, the country scale, and micro, the system itself. And I also want to add by, by focusing on Armenia, the transitional economy recently torn by war has been fascinating to me since I can apply my diverse sustainability skills. First, as an international transitional economy poverty expert to this environment, and also as a sustainability strategist to this state-related technology company and its suppliers. And also, since sustainability is a complex and non-linear problem, it will require innovative and non-linear solutions, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning to understand and to solve our sustainability challenges faster.
So I am really passionate to learn more about the realization of this technology's potential for the sustainable value creation, not only as ap applicable to Armenia, but also to other cases. So I would like to share some of the pub public sector projects. For example, during my first life chapter in Japan, I moved back to Asia last summer. In addition to my advisory services in climate sector and postdoctorate research, I was selected to serve twice as a chairman of advisory board and station chairman for American Red Cross's regional office. There, I spearheaded and implemented a new volunteer incentive program, which engaged and got all the stakeholders buy-in, tripling the rate of U.S. national volunteerism rate in 2015. I also advised and assisted regional program managers of American Red Cross in providing humanitarian service to more than 100,000 U.S. service members and civilians, and led more than 1,000 volunteers in various U.S.-Japanese humanitarian initiatives. And lastly, while building better strategic partnerships with the Japanese community, I also decided to learn Japanese language, history, and culture by obtaining the Japanese Studies Certificate from the University of Maryland Global Campus. I was very honored and humbled that for my efforts, I achieved national recognition by receiving U.S. President's Volunteer Service Award for my dedication to the mission of American Red Cross. And nowadays, I am very involved in Rotary International's SRAP, Environmental Sustainability Rotary Action Group and participate in my club's committees for international service projects and Rotary scholarships. And during the pandemic, I also served as a member of the Global Planning Committee for COP26 on behalf of ESRAG, which was a truly gratifying experience in such a really uncertain and gloomy time for humanity. Fantastic. And I really liked the, the two way how you can span from the private sector, the public sector, the not-for-profit. And sometimes it's often, they are often pit one together on the other, working in silos. Or sometimes there is like, on one side, there is a bit of also of mistrust. But now I can see how all together, and especially your career spans in all the life, you can put your competencies and work and skills working and putting an holistic perspective on, on this part. And it's really an important, an important way. And of course, you said you have a portfolio career and you are also capable of moving and you are an expert, especially in the transition, in the energy transition. And this has been recognized worldwide. I mean, you are the one of the top hydrogen global thought leader. So I want to understand a bit more on, on that is because if I want to ask if you can sh shed a bit of light on the challenges and opportunity in scaling this uh, green hydrogen globally. Sure, Samuel, be before I talk about these issues, I want to emphasize to the listeners that a just or an equitable energy transition is a main topic that I currently focus on in my sustainability research. Energy transitions are all about people, the decision makers and the ones who are affected by those decisions. And a just transition approach ensures that affected people considered by those making decisions. Hydrogen, and especially green hydrogen, is an important and one of the crucial pieces of the global decarbonization puzzle, and thus of a just energy transition. Do you think it will be useful to define green hydrogen for some of the listeners? Definitely. I was jumping in on that because we know there are many hydrogens. So, and many, many people that are listening to us, they're not technical. So can you, can we tap on your expertise? Can you explain like hydrogen 101, like in one minute, what is it? 
Sure. So hydrogen is the most abundant, abundant element available in the universe. But on Earth, it exists only in the compound form with other elements, such as gases, liquids, and solids. So green hydrogen is a hydrogen made using an electrolyzer, which is a piece of equipment that separates water into oxygen and hydrogen using renewable energy. The most common way of making hydrogen today is referred to as gray hydrogen through a steam methane reform using, using coal or gas. There is also blue hydrogen, which using the same process, but also with added carbon capture and sequestration. Pink hydrogen that uses electrolyzers with nuclear power. There is also turquoise and natural yellow hydrogen as well. Hydrogen technology fascinated me since I was a child. I come from the family of chemists, global experts in their field. I spent so much time in their laboratories during my childhood, getting live exposure to chemical innovations and reactions such as electrolysis. And it's funny enough, one of my birthday gifts in elementary school was an old 1960s vintage book, Chemistry in the 21st Century which described futuristic technologies such as hydrogen fuel cell and transportation. And as a child, couldn't wait to live in the 21st century. So now I'm thrilled that hydrogen is no longer considered a futuristic technology. And although hydrogen has not lived up to the hype for decades and still has so many challenges, which I'll briefly describe, I do believe that clean hydrogen, especially green hydrogen's time, is one of the energy transition solutions has finally come. So you asked me the question, what are, the, what are the opportunities for green hydrogen global scale-up? While green hydrogen is not a silver bullet or panacea for this transition, it uniquely complements and enables other decarbonization pathways, such as direct electrification, energy efficiency measures, and biomass-based fuels. Green hydrogen can also contribute to many sustainability policy objectives, such as economic development, energy access local air pollution, as well as energy security. But of course, there, there are many challenges. Well, let's, let's jump into them. We're just starting 2024, which might be a breakout year for the technology due to the last year's challenges. For many, last year, 2023 was supposed to be the year when green hydrogen went from a lofty idea to reality, with a wave of government subsidies ready to enter full force to virtually guarantee profitability for green hydrogen projects. But unfortunately, most significant global subsidy programs, such as U.S. Clean Hydrogen Production Tax Credit or the German-led Hydrogen Global Scheme or the EU Green Hydrogen Auctions, UK contracts for different standards, Australia's Hydrogen Head Start, and India's National Green Hydrogen Mission have really been taking longer to come into full force than expected, which delayed final investment decisions by developers with a knock-on effects for investors and electrolyzer makers. And now. The new realism is emerging among industry players and governments in terms of the cost of producing green hydrogen and the sectors that, that should be subsidized to use it. For example, some hydrogen experts believe that U.S. goal of producing green hydrogen for $1 by 2031 uh, seems to be more of a wishful thinking than an achievable goal. In 2023, developers admitted that the cost of green hydrogen is rising due to the inflation not only on the cost of electrolyzers, but also the wind turbines and solar panels supplying electricity of projects, which represents about 60 to 75% of the levelized cost of hydrogen. Also, some governments around the world also started to rethink on how clean and green hydrogen should be used and largely concluded that it should be reserved for sectors where electrification is not either possible or maybe difficult to achieve at scale. 
And like many other industry experts, I actually welcome this development since with fewer distractions to generate demand growth, such as home heating and some transport systems, green hydrogen developers may be able to speed up the development of scalable solutions for heavy industry and therefore make a crucial contribution to global emission reduction efforts. So let's see if the hopes for a smaller but more focused hydrogen economy will come true. This year, 2024, in this few weeks, there have already been some positive and negative wins in the industry. For example, in terms of negatives, last week, the Ener International Energy Agency has drastically cut its estimates for how much new wind and solar will be built to power green hydrogen production over the next five years. For example, only 45 gigawatts of new energy renewable energy capacity for green hydrogen will be built by the end of 2028, which is 7% of what developers announced. But also there is some positive development. Since the U.S. Department of Energy has just selected consortium to bridge early demand for clean hydrogen, which will provide market certainty and unlock private sector investors. Also, on another positive note, a Japanese trading house Mitsubishi Corps looks to invest over 100 billion yen to build one of the world's largest green hydrogen production plants in the Netherlands. So, to sum up, in my opinion, 2024 will be a crucial year to see what happens in the clean and green hydrogen industry. I believe that everyone should stay rationally optimistic, meaning ground their optimism in reality about how much to rely on green hydrogen in the ongoing energy transition. Fantastic, Venere. It's really, it's really a, a key moment. I mean, there have been many reports saying that, you know, if we can subsidize and reduce, I, I read three, three, two or three years ago by the University of Leeds and others. So if you can subsidize, then you can scale up the technology. I want to add a bit of our side of the world, emerging markets. Uh, we know especially Kenya is looking ahead for green hydrogen a lot because we have a lot of geothermal energy. So it can be another. So we can see there is really a future for hydrogen. And you have, I mean, written a book, co-authored a book about watching hydrogen future. So you have already have a vision for that. And you can see the project you are mentioning, the focus that is there. And I want now to see how is this future? You Can you talk about your chapter, the book mission, how we can touch this future of hydrogen? Sure, Samuel, I'm so grateful and thrilled to be part of such an inspiring global effort in writing this book, Touching Hydrogen Future, second edition. The one of the main purposes of, of the book is to educate about the pros and cause of hydrogen and inspire the next generation, encouraging them to embrace and actively contribute to the development of hydrogen technology. So Touching Hydrogen Future presents a series of short stories which describe a hypothetical future based on present-day research in countries where hydrogen is the norm. And while the book caters to primarily to energy professionals and students with interest in energy and sustainability, it is freely accessible to readers from all backgrounds. I am very grateful to the editorial team of Eric Rathwa and Rosa Puentes Fernandez for offering me the opportunity to dream about the hydrogen future of Kazakhstan for the second edition of the book. My short story, Kazakhstan 2049, Hydrogen Silk Road and Hubs, is based on the present day research, actually some of, some of it my own, and a childhood camel trekking memory in that country. This memory extends into the future caravan experience in Kazakhstan in September 2049. Here, I want to congratulate all the 38 authors from six continents who came together to share their visionary stories about the world transformed by hydrogen. 
And as of today, the book's global reach is, a, is as follows, big impact. There are about 10,000, about more than 10,000 downloads. Also, hard, hard copies can be bought from Amazon in 12 countries, USA, UK, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Netherlands, Sweden, Poland, Canada, Australia, and Japan. There's a global reach of more than 130 countries. And the book also can be downloaded for free from europeangasmarket.edu. We will put the links on the description of the podcast for readers. Great, great. It's really such an important feature, and I really like the, the format. It reminds me of another book that I just recently read. 2041. So about the future of AI. So it's really something that helps us seeing the future and see the transition and go past the obstacle of this transition and the sustainability. And really in going past the obstacle, we know that the human touch and the factor is important. And there is a lot of significance of being in a network. And especially for the what was underrepresented category, especially in the energy sector, in the tech sector. That is, unfortunately, women. And we know that is changing. Now, the snowball effect is there, and many women have joined. So we are not talking about 30 or 40 years ago. And especially, I want to talk about this because you are one of the pillars of this network. You are in the Women Green Hydrogen and Tech for Women. So what is the significance of this network in amplifying the voices of women in the climate and tech sector? Samuel, the significance of these networks cannot be underestimated during the ongoing energy transition. For example, Women in Green Hydrogen, where I'm one of the international experts, is a global network of women working in the green hydrogen sector. The next work's vision is to increase the visibility and amplify the voices of women working in green hydrogen. Therefore, the network works hard to promote the participation of women in conferences, relevant media, and expert talk. So, in sum, the goal of Women in Green Hydrogen Network is to build a community to connect women in green hydrogen, foster knowledge exchange, and create professional opportunities for their members. I especially would like to praise the Women in Green Hydrogen Mentoring Program, which is now in its third edition with a record number of 180 mentees and mentors. Also, Women who are keen about investing in the professional growth in the technology sector should look into the Tech Hub for Women, which is a collaborative hub for the advancement of women in the sector. I'm honored to be a speaker and a contributor to this platform, which holds dynamic Tech Hub for Women yearly conferences in New York and San Diego, and now branching out to London. It provides webinar series, podcasts, and workshops. And most importantly, this platform shares educational and networking opportunities, especially for the career relaunches, by taking the fear factor out of the technology. And it's such an important part. And my suggestion for the network, since you are one of the leaders, is also to expand more even to our markets here and to, to, to the emerging market. It would be a wonderful, a wonderful way. And of course, you are also expanding your work. You mentioned before also you you have a strong focus now on a new published article you've discussed about Japan. And we want to discuss a bit about your um, next uh, one of the main, one of the things that you will do because we know you, is this, you, you are speaking at the Japan, Japan Energy Summit about the new nexus, about policy framework to improve Japan energy and environmental security, the resilience and the reliability. And we know, especially in an area now that is also hot geopolitically. Can you talk about the main ideas of your framework? Do you have 
recommendation on how this can be applied in the Japanese energy sector. I will be happy to do so, Samuel. My research is a five-part policy series was published on Illuminum late last year under the title Policies to Improve Energy and Environmental Security, the Resilience and Reliability, a case study on Japan. Let me give you and the listeners a brief background on the country's situation. So Japan is the world's third largest economy faces multiple energy and environmental issues. For example, its energy security environment is vulnerable compared to the other group of seven P7 countries. For example, in 2022, its primary energy self-sufficiency ratio accounted for 11% versus that of Canada, which was 179%, US 106%, and the United Kingdom 75%. Why? The scarcity of domestic fossil fuels underpins this low self-sufficiency ratio. For example, in 2022, Japan is the, the, the world's fifth largest global oil consumer, dependent on imports for 97%, just think about it, 97 of its primary energy supply, exposing itself to the high international fossil fuels price volatility amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Japan has many other energy resources, but doesn't use them to their full potential, such as solar, wind, uh, you mentioned ge- geothermal, tidal, and wave. Second, Japan energy resilience issues exacerbated by natural disasters exist due to the poorly interconnected split electricity system. Third, although the country had a relatively high level of energy reliability, its recent situation significantly worsened due to typhoons and earthquake caused long and large-scale power outages. And the continued integration of variable renewable energy and future climate change might further affect Japanese energy reliability and resilience. At the same time, Japan must also consider evolving environmental security, resilience, and reliability situations. Like the rest of the world, Japan grapples with the effect of global climate change, which continues to affect its food security and its ecosystem resilience and reliability. Water security is also irrelevant. Since a quarter of Japanese population will live in water-scarce areas between 2020 and 2030. So all these presented issues are crucial in the context of the current energy transition, which strives to achieve carbon neutrality amid the challenges, such as the need for energy security, macroeconomic impacts, the new north-south divide, and the global competition for critical minerals. And by, by the way, the new north-south divide is defined by the preeminent energy expert Daniel Jorgen as the sharpening difference between developed, such as Japan, and developing countries on how the transition should proceed. So despite the complexity of the task, I strongly believe that cross-sectoral policies might improve Japanese environmental and energy situations. So using the Stockholm Environmental Institute SEI Nexus framework, which includes water, food, and energy security, also, with my additional proposed sectoral actions for energy, environmental reliability and resilience, as well as environmental security, I developed a new concept of nexus integrated policies for Japan. And since water, food, and energy form a nexus at the heart of sustainable development, I believe that the nexus approach is crucial for the nexus integrated policies. So these policies were built on the SEI framework principle. So first principle is environment, investing in sustaining ecosystem services. Second, economy, creating more with less. Third, society, acceleration of integration and better access to the poorest. The framework also considered climate change, population growth, and urbanization as combined pressures on ecosystem and limited resources. Finance, 
innovation and governments are also essential for the success of this nexus integrated policies. My nexus integrated policies also propose additional policy recommendations, uh, such as first, understanding that the most viable options to strengthen energy situation require definitely longer timeframes and may not be the same actions to solve environmental issues. Second, selecting cleaner energy options for the energy transition by assessing their life cycle emissions and supply chains. Third, creating a true circular economy for solving environmental and energy challenges. And lastly, guaranteeing the just energy transition while accounting for different net externalities and trade-offs. And of course, these policies are not perfect. There are limitations of them. These policies do not incorporate the political uncertainty connected with the policies implementation. Second, some of the proposed actions may overlap, may not fit into the time categories entirely or uniquely. But regardless of the shortcomings, to my knowledge, no studies in the public domain present nexus integrated policies for Japan while considering various energy and environmental challenges. And in terms of further recommendations based on my framework, uh, next week I'm, I'm pleased that Illuminum is scheduled to publish my new uh, research policy series named Begin at the Beginning, Nexus Integrated Policies for Clean Hydrogen Production and Integration into the High-Priority Heavy Industry Sectors in Japan. So here I use my framework to present an ambitious Begin at the Beginning Clean Hydrogen Production and Integrated strategy for the country consisting of three phases, <clears throat> short-term scale-up until 2030, mid-term steps 2030-2050, and also long-term growth beyond 2050. So I look forward to your listeners' feedback. Fantastic. And we will put the links to your research and the articles because it's such a crucial nexus that can be also a case study on how to replicate maybe in other countries and the world. So it's really an important part. And I really, I really like the holistic, as in, again, the holistic approach that comes also from your diverse expertise from the public, the private and not for profit. And this is the way really to, to give a transition and especially so not overlooking one of other aspects, but really going in the wall and the system. So it's really, it's really a wonderful series. And I recommend everybody to go in the description, have a look at it. Thank and, you. and I mean, Venera, you are, I mean, a wonderful expert. You have, I mean, achieved so much and I'm sure 24 and more, 24, let's say the year of the dragon. I mean, it will be a good year or something. So we will, uh, you will do even more and you will be, I mean, uh, at the forefront of the sustainability work. And, but I know. Many people that are listening to the podcast all over the world, from the US to here in Africa to Asia, they are like me. I mean, they want to start or maybe they are midway in their career. So with advice you can give to the young professional that are looking really to make an impact in the field of sustainability and climate change. That's a great question, Samuel. You know, the fields of sustainability and climate change are truly exciting. However, as one can see, these fields can also have their own challenges. I enjoy reading an article by Andrew Winston in the recent Harvard Business Review, article 2023, a strange tumultuous year in sustainability. When where he identified the last year, it was a yin-yang of interconnected opposing forces. For example, he says that as a society, we are winning. More companies are incorporating sustainability in their, in their planning and losing. Carbon emissions and inequality are still rising. Or as the cleaner 
cleaner economy keeps rising or human equality and rights get more attention. There are always those who work hard to slow the progress. So I believe that this tug of war of opposing forces brings uncertainty to the sustainability and climate sector professionals, especially the young ones who are just starting in this in this field or career relaunches. However, as a rational optimist, I truly believe in the saying, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. So I believe that everyone in this world with determination and willingness to pour their hearts and minds into the field have a potential to become great sustainability and climate leaders who can change the world in their own ways. Also, another piece of advice, despite how it looks on social media, big gains are usually the results of consistent small steps over time. For example, in addition to my many daily jobs, I've been writing scientific peer-reviewed sustainability-related research in various languages for the past two decades. So despite how it looks now on social media, where I have just become active in recent years, I am not an overnight Illuminum voice success. I'm truly honored and humbled that the Illuminum community and other networks appreciate my thoughts and my voice, but climbing to the summit took a lot of hard work. I also want to add that I'm thrilled to continue learning from many other thought leaders in the world, as there are so many incredible minds out there. In other words, lifelong learning and improvement are requirements for young professionals who want to make a tangible impact in this constantly changing sustainability and climate field. And lastly, I believe that genuine collaboration in sustainability and climate sectors is very important. I don't like the word networking, as it for me it just sounds just very transactional. So to make a bigger impact in sustainability and climate, I suggest to work hard in finding your tribe. Crack door open for others who want to start in the field and help them rise without expecting anything in return. And together, focus on the hard but tremendously exciting work with humility for the goodness of humanity. Wow, what a fantastic message. And I'm really glad that you came to the podcast to share your knowledge, to share your journey with our listeners. Then they can be inspired and really walk. I mean, the way you have done and really become and give their contribution to this sustainability journey that is so crucial and so important for the, for the future of our planet, for the future also of our species, and not only ours, but for all species in the planet. So thank you so much, Venera. It has been a pleasure and honor hosting you in the podcast. It's been wonderful to, to discuss all these different issues in my journey with you, Samuel. And for the listeners... You're welcome to, to reach out to me on via Illuminum, uh, via me, my LinkedIn. I will be happy to to, to help in, in any way I can. Fantastic. And you will find all the description and all the links in our podcast description. Thank you. Thank you so much, Venera. Thank you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.